It's good to welcome you here this morning. Thank you for coming out and worshiping with us today. Before we get started, I'll give you a little bit of a, a little bit of update on the uh, progress of the building. <clears throat> if you will uh, notice around the room and in the uh, other rooms out there, we have there's some pictures up. These are the concept uh, drawings of what uh, what we're hoping uh, is going to happen here. We are working with the architects right now, Mountain West Design out of Ogden, Utah. You got a team of architects there, plus uh, uh, plus uh, construction design engineers and uh, lots of different uh, people. We're, we're in contact with the architects many times a week, at least uh, officially once and uh, many different times trying to get the facility that we feel we need and want built for the budget that we have available, which is going to be nothing short of a miraculous. But uh, we're uh, hoping, I'm hoping that maybe as early as March, sometime in March, we could break ground. It will completely depend upon uh, getting, the, uh, getting the blueprints and, and then getting the, uh, the permit so, but things are progressing, progressing well there. I do want to remind you, I think it's uh, February 6th, uh, City Council will be uh, hearing our request for the zone change on the uh, Burger Den property, on the property just to the east of us. That was supposed to take place in December and then in January, but we're pretty sure it's going to happen uh, in, in February, and they've been very positive so far, so we don't anticipate any difficulty. We don't foresee it, any difficulty there. Uh, that needs to be changed from a light industrial to a commercial zoning so we can, uh, so we can have a church in, uh, in that uh, area. And the, the Burger Den building itself, is we're anticipating using that for a youth, uh, uh, youth uh, center, and then on... Immediately out this side of this building, we, we have plans for a multi-purpose and then a, a lawn to the east of that. Then, of course, classrooms and kitchen off to this side and sanctuary uh, out front. Any questions on where we're at on that? Thank you very much. Appreciate uh, the pledges and the, your, can, your prayers and uh, uh, your donations, as I said, it's going to be, it'll be a miracle, but uh, it's a miracle that I'm looking forward to to being a part of and watching that take place. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as we uh, continue. Thank Chris for covering for me last week. We just kind of took the day off. I was anticipating that we may be going to visit the grandkids or something else, and none of that transpired, so we just had kind of a relaxing day, my wife and I. But back to the letter of the, to the Corinthians, the, the, this letter was written to the church and to the home churches that met in Corinth. In the time of Paul's writing this letter, the population of the city of Corinth was about 90,000 people roughly the size of Mel or Nampa, a little smaller than that. It was known for its wealth from the sea trade. And another point of renown was the Temple of Aphrodite that was located there. The temple obviously has since fallen into ruins, but you can walk around the ruins, still see 
columns and the foundation stones laying there. Most believe that one of the features that made this temple so renowned, allegedly, was the thousand temple prostitutes who came down from the temple site to the city at night and sold their bodies in support of that temple. Another source of income would have been the animal sacrifices that would have taken place there at that temple. Just this past week or two, there was a city, I don't remember if it was Minnesota or where it was, uh, where they passed an ordinance allowing the sacrifice and butchering of animals. It was having to do with the in practice of the Muslim religion. So in Corinth, like in Jer Jerusalem, and even like in some parts of this country, you could bring your animal to the temple as a sacrifice to your God. The sacrifice might include the burning of the fat or the entrails or another part of the animal. And then the rest of the meat would would be given to the priests, probably even the prostitutes, and the remainder would be sold in the temple, in the temple meat market or the temple steakhouse, or wholesaled out. If you lived at that time in that place and you wanted a good cut of meat, you would go to the temple. I don't know if you've gone to the steakhouse in Ontario, the Cowboys uh, uh, restaurant over there, but... Uh, Similar to what you do at the temple. You would go there and order a, 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 your favorite cut of steak. And, and I really highly recommend the Cowboys over there. It's kind of expensive, so save up, save up your money. But uh, have a good steak. You wanted a good steak at Corinth, you might go to the temple. Of course, we uh, are much more sophisticated than, uh, than they were in our day and age. Uh, we don't... Uh, we don't believe in some of the idol worship that they practiced. We know, that, uh, we know that the stone idol or the wood idol, that's all they were, was wood or stone. Uh, we don't necessarily sacrifice to idols. They had primitive beliefs. They, uh, they believe life originated from non-living matter. I guess we kind of still believe that too in the evolutionist movement. But at, at any event, idol worship was common in that age and not so much today. We don't have idols in the 21st century, or do we? Webster's definition of idolatry is the worship of a physical object as a god. Now, that may be practiced in some parts of the world, but certainly not here as a general rule. But the second definition is an immoderate, an immoderate attachment to something, to love, or to admire, to excess. An immoderate attachment to something, to love, or admire, to excess. Many grandparents look at their grandchildren coming of age in the social media era and are concerned what kind of attraction do these little phones have? What kind of a hold and sway do they have over our children and grandchildren? Dak Prescott, quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, a couple weeks ago, had one of the worst performances of his career in, his, uh, in their Dallas Cowboys loss to Washington. Following the loss, and fo the following week, he actually had probably the best game of his career as they won their first playoff game. 
But following his loss to Washington, Dak said that one of the changes he made was he stayed off of social media. He stayed away from social media. He knew how destructive it can be. How many likes do I have? How many dislikes do I have? Our young people are very much influenced by what somebody's thinking about them and what somebody is saying about them on social media. Dak Prescott, and as an adult, knew how dangerous that is. I think it's one area we might have a little trouble with. Just define idolatry. This will be easiest for us if we just define idolatry as anything that comes before God in our life. Idolatry is anything that is more important to us than God. Anything you cannot handle in moderation. Anything that controls us. I had a Christian friend a number of years ago. I used to try to convince him, hey, why don't you come and join one of our cell groups? Why don't you come out to our Bible study in the evening? And over a number of years in having a relationship with them, it came out that the reason they could not go is they couldn't be out past 5 o'clock. Because 5 o'clock is when she had to have her first glass of wine for the evening. It began to pull on her, began to draw on her, even in, the, even in the morning, in the afternoon. Okay, at 5 o'clock, I can have a glass of wine. And so she wasn't able to do some of the other activities that, uh, that maybe somebody else would. It can be something like that, but the list goes on and on. It can be money. It can be sex. It can be drugs. It can be porn. It can be pleasure. It can be leisure. It can be alcohol or food or tobacco. Anything that controls us. Now for the Corinthian, the temple was a happening place, the place they loved to meet, the place that served the best burger in town. It was a good time at the temple. And even after they became Christians, there were still two things that happened. They were still tempted or drawn back to the pleasure, the feeling, the only place where they felt a certain way, the only thing that brought them some relaxation. They were tempted to go back to their old ways. Or they had been delivered from all of that. And as a Christian, they had freedom. So what was the big deal about going back? Or who cared if I ate meat offered to idols? It's my business. Let's put it in today's terms. What was wrong with a Christian exercising their freedom. Now keep in mind that idolatry, once again, is whatever you give yourself to ahead of God. Now Paul is going to end this discussion. It's been going on, we started it way back before Christmas. It happened, started in chapter 9, or chapter 8, and then 9, and then 10. 20% of the letter of 1 Corinthians deals with this issue of Meat offered to idols. By way of review, back in chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it.
Now keep in mind, this is in the context of talking about idol worship. These Christians were tempted to go back to the old familiar habits. And they don't know if they're going to be able to withstand the temptation to quit, to give up, to turn back. To be drugged back into the old lifestyle. And Paul says, I want you to remember what I put down as the threefold nature of temptation. Or three characteristics of temptation when it comes. First of all, it is common. Number one, temptation is whatever temptation you are experiencing, it's common. It's common. Nothing is happening to you that someone else has not gone through or is even currently going through or will go through shortly. If misery loves company, you'll be glad to know you're in good company. We've all been there. Maybe it's your turn now, but someone else has already been there or will be there soon. We all want to quit sometimes. We'd all like to have a drink or to check out or a cigarette or to worry or to hang it up or to drop out. It's common. I'm sorry. It's your turn. Number two, it's limited. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. A lot of people say to me at this point, I sure wish I had the confidence in me that God does because I don't think I can make it. I don't think I'm going to make it. Everybody's been there. With God, you will make it. He will not allow too much. But if you quit and if you give in, you'll never know what the two of you are capable of. It's limited. It may seem like it's going to crush you. It may seem like you cannot handle it. But God has limited it. And number three, God always provides a way out. Now, you can go past that way out. You can go deeper and deeper. It's like if you get on the freeway and you, and you come to the first exit. It's the first way of escape. Turn and run away from temptation. But no, I can go a little further. So you go down to exit 9, and, and, and it's tougher now, but there's still an opportunity to get off the freeway. But no, I want to go further and further and further. It's going to be more and more difficult, but God will provide you a way out. Don't miss the first exit, because you won't like the next exit. You will not like it. But I guarantee you, he will provide a way out. He says he'll provide a way out. As a matter of fact, the best way out, the best way to overcome the temptation of idolatry, which we all are tempted in idolatry to put something before God, whether it's ourself or some other object. But the best way to overcome that temptation, as well as all temptations, is to flee. It's to get off of the road as soon as possible, especially idolatry as well as all temptations. The way out of idolatry, the way to overcome those urges that control, that overpower you, those urges that supersede your relationship with God. Verse 14, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. The way to overcome it is to flee from it. Not to stand up to it, not to face it, squarely and say, I can handle this. 
It's to flee. It's to get out of Dodge. Now, what I find interesting in these next few verses we're going to look at here is Paul's use of the word to have or to partake. It is a Greek word, koinonia. Koinonia. I'm sure you've heard that expression. I first heard the word koinonia in BYF, which is Baptist Youth Fellowship, when I was 15 or 16 years old. It didn't make any sense to me then. What is koinonia? It's fellowship. Why didn't you just say that? And that fellowship is a, is a process where we become a part of what we're involved in. Koinonia, especially, it is we become a part of what we drink, what we eat, who we worship, who we sleep with. I've shared about my friend a number of years ago when he was speaking about a relationship that he was having with another woman. He was married, but that wasn't good enough. Now he's having a relationship and moving on. And he said, well, it's just sex. It all washes off. No, it doesn't. You have a fellowship with it. You have a part with it. You have a relationship with it. It becomes a part of you. And you become a part of it. She becomes a part of you. You become a part of him. That's what fellowship, that's what koinonia is. You have a part. You participate. And when we flee these urges, when we run away from those, we need to run to something. We need to run to something stronger. So the second part there is we flee. The way out of idolatry is to flee and to flee to something. Verse 15. I speak to sensible people. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. I speak to sensible people here. Judge for yourselves, Paul says, what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? He's getting into communion here. Our communion celebration. What does that have to do with this? Koinonia. Fellowship. Participation. Partaking. Is not the cup for which we give thanks a participation. A koinonia. In the blood of Christ. And is not the bread we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Now when we partake of communion here, we use the little wafers. It doesn't mean we got to go get a loaf of bread and all of us have to have a piece of that. We pray over the bread, it is consecrated, it is recognized as the body of Christ. And we participate, although it is wafers, it's one body. And those believers down the road, believers in the next town, believers who are not with us today, they also can participate with us. We all do it together. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, we all partake of one loaf. Verse 18. Well, we'll stop with that one for, for a second. So we partake of communion. As I said, we pray a prayer of consecration, we all share in the body. So number one of Roman numeral number three, the way out of idolatry is to flee. Flee to the body 
or the blood of Christ. Number two, flee to the body of Christ. Through your communion with Christ, he becomes a part of you. Christ lives in you. He chooses to live in you. You are a part of him. He is a part of you. Now, Paul will ask in another place the whole idea of, of, of having sex outside of marriage. It wouldn't do to unite. If Christ is in you, it wouldn't do to unite your body with a prostitute. What good is going to come out of that? That would cause a great deal of trouble. Don't you suppose? We become one in the body with Christ. We, we, we eat his body symbolically when we, take, when we partake of communion. We enter into his body when we partake of the wine, of the drink, of the blood. Verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Now, I do not suggest, okay, so I do not suggest that you flee to the altar of Israel. This is given as an example to us that Israel was one together. They were a part of the community through their participation in the feasts, and the meat that was offered as sacrifice on God's altar by the priests. They participated. They were protected. They were made holy. They were set apart. Now, don't give up and don't get confused here. Verse 19. Do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants or to have koinonia or fellowship with demons. So for believers, an idol, and for the Christians at Corinth, an idol was nothing. The sacrifice made to an idol was nothing. You wanted to eat that meat that was offered to the to the idol, that's fine, because an idol is nothing. And yet to the pagan who offers it, he doesn't realize what's going on. He doesn't realize that he is actually offering that sacrifice to a demon. But the temple is so beautiful. The past was so beautiful. How can you say that there is a demon behind it? When you are worshiping something or someone besides God, when we put somebody ahead of God, we put somebody or something first in our life, there is a demon behind that worship. There is a demon who is laughing, who is, who is excited about the fact that you are giving your worship and your adoration and yourself to something other than God. Behind the temple at Corinth, behind the sacrifice at Corinth, on the, on the altar, behind the old lifestyle, in the drug, in whatever it is that lures us, in anything that's more important to you than the triune, eternal God, I don't care what your temple looks like, you're sacrificing, we're sacrificing to a demon at that point. 
sacrificing to a demon at that point. Roman numeral number four, we are to flee. We're to flee from number one, sacrifices offered to demons. And number two, participation with demons. Second part of verse 20. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Participation with demons, we become a part of them and they get their claws into us. And we're to also, number three, flee from attempting to eat at the Lord's table and Satan's table. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. We can't have life the old way and be born again and have a new life as well. In John, in the first epistle of John, John says you cannot go on sinning. He doesn't say you shouldn't. He doesn't say it would be a better idea not to. He says you can't. Now, God doesn't take away our free will, but God will, and he doesn't take away our, our opportunity to make choices. He will limit the choices we have, and we will come to a point where we cannot continue to live like we used to. We cannot continue to offer those sacrifices to the demons and eat at the table of the demons and eat at the Lord's table. If you are a believer, you've been born again. We have to learn how to live accordingly. The old has to pass away. We have to leave that temple and those things that used to draw us and hold us and still tempt us and are very still very much appealing. And we have to choose the Lord's table. We cannot do both. And he says you can't eat at both the Lord's table and the demon's table. And look at verse 22. Are you trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Are we stronger than he is? Idolatry arouses the jealousy of God. So this is where we're at. This is where we're living in the 21st century. A lot of Christians don't want to give up the old ways. In fact, none of us do. None of us do. We'd like to have it both ways. We'd like to still be on the throne of our life, thinking we're in charge. We want to do what we want to do. We want to do what brings us pleasure, even if it means running back to that temple, to the old ways, the old habits, the old emotions, the anger, the fits of rage. That's who we were before we became Christians. We were sacrificing it at Satan's table. God will not allow us to eat at both tables. What's he going to do about it? Glad you ask. Paul asks, are you stronger than God? God is not jealous in the same way that we are. The same insecure way that we show jealousy. God is jealous in that he loves you, in that he loves us, and he knows what's at stake. And when we worship at Satan's table, 
or whatever comes before God. Remember, Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy. When you see death and destruction and loss, God knows that that's a result of Satan working in this fallen world. And God does not want that for you. And he will only allow Satan to have his way in our lives enough so we might forsake the old and give way to becoming new. Don't, you don't want to make God jealous. We don't want to make God jealous. It's not a pleasant experience. I'm sure we've all been there. I was, I, I heard earlier, earlier this last week, I was asked to pray for a, a certain individual who was going through a very, well, they were in the hospital, diagnosed with three uh, different uh, brain, uh, forms of brain cancer, and, and they didn't know if, if they were going to make it at all. Then I heard that, that this uh, individual had been released from the hospital and had turned over a new leaf, said, I'm not going to drink anymore and I'm going to go to church. You see, probably something God had wanted that individual to do for a long time. But, but no, they couldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. Finally, they were on their back, thought they were headed out of this world, and were willing to say, hey, uncle, or God, you can have, you can have your way. You want to know how to avoid idolatry? Look at these next verses, 23. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. You see, what they would do is they'd go to the, if you bought meat offered at the, at the temple, there were some who thought, well, that's, that's been offered to an idol, so you can't eat it. Paul is saying an idol is nothing. Yeah, you can eat it. You're a Christian. You have, you have freedom to do, to, to do many, many things. But if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for both the sake of the man who told you and for conscience sake. The other man's conscience. I mean, not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jew or Greek or the church of God. So don't allow anybody out in the community to stumble because of my behavior. Even as I try, get this, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Now that is the new life that we are called to live. There was a temple in Corinth up the hill in their background. That's old. That's passed away. There was... That's, we used to derive pleasure from going there, from being involved in these activities, even, unfortunately, at Satan's table. That is old. We have a new commandment. A new commandment is given. Love. Love. 
Don't do anything that is going to hurt anyone else and hurt their conscience. There's a new dinner table. It is the Lord's dinner table. In fact, don't get in a fight at the dinner table. If somebody puts meat before you, give thanks and eat it. If somebody says, you shouldn't eat that, that's been offered to an idol. Or any number of things that we get divided over and we argue over. No argument. You don't have to have it your way. Paul doesn't say try to point out their heirs to them. He says, everyone, for what has been put in front of you. And try to in every way following Jesus' example. Few of us have the same passion for the lost that Paul displayed. But all of us have a lost friend or a loved one who we would like to see come to the Lord. Or we have children whose faith is just developing. Or we have students. In order to not stand in the way of their development or salvation, are we willing, as Paul said, to try to please everybody in every way so they may be saved? Are we willing to argue less, to allow others to come along at a slower pace than we might like or expect? Are we willing to accept our part in their development and to avoid controversies and habits and preferences that may be our rights but may not be beneficial to weaker Christians? Are we willing to live in such a way as to seek the good of others? Please join with me in a word of prayer. Father, such a strange idea to us in the 21st century, and yet it seems extremely, extremely current, extremely contemporary. Lord, help us to learn from Paul's example, who learned from Jesus' example, that we might be less controversial, that we might be more accommodating, that we might truly love in such a way that we seek what is best for the other, for the, for the weaker brother and sister, that we might seek what is best for the lost. That we might live in such a way that they might see you through us, be drawn to you. Thank you, Father, for this challenge that you've given to me. Thank you for these words, the insights. Father, we love you and we thank you. Thank you for your great love for each of us. Help us to share as much of that as we are capable of with those around us. Help us not to get in the way by our preferences and our prejudices and our past. Father, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. You have a wonderful afternoon.